1: All right, everybody, welcome uh, back again to the podcast, and I'm I'm continuing my uh, conversation with Diane Perkins Castro, and we're going to be talking now about the 10th anniversary of the book "Love Wins." Came out March 15, 2011, and that book really brought the discussion of universal Christianity and universal salvation to the um, to the attention of everybody, really. I mean, it really got people talking about it. So, on the 10th anniversary, I thought we'd just uh, reflect back about it and 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 say some things uh, about the book. And uh, and Diane, you, you recommend that people should take a look at Rob Bell's book, uh, but why don't you share? Uh, at the end, at the end of at the end of your book, you give some uh, recommended readings. Why don't you share with us what you said about Rob Bell's book at the end of uh, at the end of your book?
2: Okay, well, Rob Bell's book came out fairly early in my journey into universal restoration, and I saw the comments that were swirling before the book was even published, and people <laughs> were dismissing him from the evangelical community and, and saying he was no longer one of us. And um, so I wanted to read the book for myself. And when I did, I saw that it was asking a lot of questions, but not really answering the questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And he, he raised questions that were on people's minds and maybe sort of led toward what people should think about those questions, but he didn't really give answers. But people assumed that even by raising these questions, he was suggesting that eternal damnation is not true and that God saves everybody. And I believe he would not identify as a universalist, but people thought he was and rejected him on that basis and these these questions i found i don't really identify with him as someone who represents my beliefs but i'm very grateful to him for getting the conversation going mm-hmm. and it was shortly after that that i started my blog where i po- posted what i was thinking about these questions in hopes of joining that conversation and being part of the discussion about these questions.
1: Well, the the thing that was uh, striking to me about it was at the time, Rob Bell was really popular among evangelicals. And I live in a conservative little small town, a little Christian bookstore, and all of Rob Bell's books were in there. And he had a DVD series of talks that he had given and they were being shown to evangelical churches, youth groups. And he was kind of the, you know, it's, it's almost like if evangelicalism was going to have a future with young people, somehow a lot of people are thinking that Rob Bell is kind of showing us the way, uh, the way how to do this. And uh, then he came out with this book, Love Wins, and it was just like an explosion. Mm. Uh, and you know, people that were sort of considered to be high level in evangelicalism were we're saying, well, he's no longer uh, an evangelical. And in the beginning of his book, Rob Bell writes, uh, a, uh, of love wins, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and that to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. Hmm. Well, I can see why he would, that would have raised <laughs> some hackles because evangelicalism, is, at least as I experienced it growing up, was pretty much everything was sort of, why do you accept Jesus as your savior? Because if you don't, you're going to hell forever. So for Rob Bell to even question that and to even, and, you know, to, to put it in those terms was really upsetting. Would would you kind of agree with that summary of things?
2: Yes, yes. It was very disturbing to people to even question that paradigm. And so when he came out and said these things, people flipped out.
1: Yeah. And also one of the things that that Rob did in the book was, he pointed out that there had been an early tradition in in the history of the church that was really in support of this. And one of the things about evangelicals is that they tend to uh, have the the New Testament and then they sort of jump to the Protestant Reformation and talk about various figures in the Protestant Reformation and then sort of move forward from that point. But they really don't spend much time going over the first three or four centuries of the church and what people were thinking then and so i'm just going to read a uh, passage here from bell's book where he writes and so beginning with the early church there was a long tradition of christians who believe that god will ultimately restore everything and everybody because jesus says in matthew 19 that there will be a renewal of all things Peter says in Acts 3 that Jesus will restore everything, and Paul says in Colossians 1 that through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In the 3rd century, the church fathers' clement of Alexandria and origin affirmed God's reconciliation with all people. In the 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa and Eusebius believed this as well. In their day, Jerome claimed that most people. Basil said the mass of men, and Augustine acknowledged that very many believed in the ultimate reconciliation of all people to God. Central to their trust that all would be reconciled was the belief that untold masses of people suffering forever doesn't bring glory to God. Restoration brings glory to God. Eternal torment doesn't. Reconciliation brings God's glory. Endless anguish doesn't. Renewal and return cause God's greatness to shine through the universe. Never-ending punishment doesn't. To be clear again, an, old, an untold number of serious disciples of Jesus across the hundreds of years, across hundreds of years, have assumed, affirmed, and trusted that no one can resist God's pursuit forever, because God's love will eventually melt even the hardest of hearts. Could God say to someone truly humbled, broken, and desperate for reconciliation, "Sorry, too late"? Many have refused to accept the scenario in which somebody is pounding on the door, apologizing, repenting, and asking God to be let in only to hear God say through the keyhole, door's locked, sorry, if you'd been here earlier, I could have done something, but now it's too late. As it's written in Second Timothy 2, God cannot disown himself. As Abraham asked in Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Which is stronger and more powerful, the hardness of the human heart or God's unrelenting, infinite, expansive love? Thousands through the years have answered that question with the resounding response, God's love, of course, as John reminds his church in his first letter, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. At the center of the Christian tradition since the first church have been a number who insist that history is not tragic. Hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. Hmm. Now, if you, just, if you just read that and stopped right there, you would assume that uh, Rob Bell was advocating Christian universalism, wouldn't you? I mean, that's a pretty good—actually, that's a very good summary of the argument for Christian uh, Christian universalism or universal restoration, wouldn't you say?
2: It is. It is, and I, I agree with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, but just a few pages later then, let's see, that's on page 122. Uh, on page 130 and 131, Bell writes, Love demands freedom, and freedom provides that possibility. People take that option now, and we can assume it will be taken in the future. And then on page 131, will everyone be saved, or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? Those are questions, or more accurately, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't, and so we simply respect them creating space for the freedom that love requires. If we want isolation, despair, and the right to be our own God, God graciously grants us that option. If we insist on using our God-given power and strength to make the world in our own image, God allows that freedom. We have the kind of license to do that. If we want nothing to do with light, hope, love, grace, and peace, God respects that desire on our part, and we are given a life free from any of those realities the more we want nothing to do with all God is, the more distance and space are created. If we want nothing to do with love, we are given a reality free from love. Mm. So now that is not the kind of way that uh, a Christian universalist uh, would argue. Uh, And so to me, uh, what what Rob Bell is arguing there is that, yes, there has been this strong tradition in the church. Is it true? I don't know. It almost sounds like I'm more of the opinion that if people want to wall themselves off for God forever, that God finally gives them what they want. Is that is that kind of the, the overall impression that you kind of got from the book too?
2: Yes, that's the same impression I got, and that he was kind of fuzzy about what he actually believes. And so I can't really align myself with him. But what he stated about the early church is is accurate. And he opened the door for people to be able to consider that. But at the same time, he also kept open that door that, well, people can reject it and not come to Christ and forever reject him. So he, he would not be a full-blown universalist, but even opening that door got him in a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought was ironic was, you know, he's not saying that he's a Christian universalist. All he's saying is that, well, there's a strong argument that can be made for it. And uh, to me, the nice part about was that he was, to me, what he was saying is we shouldn't kick people. If somebody's a Christian universalist, we shouldn't kick them out of the church or call them heretics. Because it was very prominent in the early histories of the church, and look, you can make a good biblical argument for it. A lot of people have: is it is 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 that what's going to happen? And then he just kind of throws his hands up. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It could be mm-hmm. that some people uh, resist God forever, and God finally gives them what they want, and then he just kind of you know he moves on for that. From that, in a way, kind of the power of the book then was that he didn't come down on he it caused i think it was interesting in that people kind of saw in the book kind of what they wanted to see and that's Mm -hmm. why it just got everybody so you know uh so fired up and he was unfairly called a christian universalist although i don't think there's anything wrong with that but that just wasn't what he was promoting
2: right and the, the irony was that he was trying to say people who do believe this shouldn't be cast out of the church shouldn't be considered heretics and yet even for saying that he was basically cast out of the evangelical church and labeled a heretic.
1: Yeah. Well, the book gave um, it, it, it's an important, I think everybody that's interested in this topic of Christian universalism ought to read it. It's, uh, it's just one that, that, that we all need to, to know about. In your book, you give in uh, Appendix B Bell's Hells, Seven Myths About Universalism by Robin Perry. And uh, I'd like to just go through that uh, a little bit as a way to sort of reflect on some of the issues that, that Rob Bell's book ended up uh, raising, fairly or unfairly, because people just had all kinds of response, responses to it. So the first myth that, and again, this you include this in Appendix B in your book, and this is Robin Perry is writing this. The first myth is that universalists don't believe in hell. And he writes, uh, Robin Perry says, many an online critic of Bell has complained that he, along with his universalist allies, do not believe in hell. Here, for instance, is Todd Todd Pruitt, quote, Rob Bell denies the reality of hell. And then Mr. uh, Capital B, Capital H, Mr. B.H. adds to hell with no hell, to hell with what's being sold by Rob Bell. And so that's a myth that universalists don't don't believe in hell. So as a Christian universalist, what would you say uh, hell? Would you say that you don't believe in hell or that you do believe in hell?
2: Well, hell as a place of fiery literal torture, no, I don't believe in it. But the the concept of judgment, I very much believe in. And I, I do believe that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and that it will will not be fun if we have resisted God. But I think, as I've said before, that God's judgment is redemptive in nature and that um, we don't have to fear this um, fiery torture pit, but we do need to fear standing before the living God to have a healthy fear of his righteousness and his judgment. And that's that's why in, in my book, I talk about false hope true hope, false fear, true fear, that that um, we shouldn't have the false fear of being tormented forever, but we should have true fear of God and have a deep reverence and respect for his righteousness, his holiness, and his judgment.
1: Yeah, I've, I've told people that uh, uh, when they're trying to understand what I'm talking about, they'll say, okay, so you don't believe in hell and i'll say well i i do believe in a place of 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 um, consequence that's not that's not heaven it's not a you're you're in a place where you're facing the consequences of your actions and it's a grueling place it's not it's not fun it's not a place where you want to stay but Uh, but you will stay there as long as is necessary. And that might be a really long time. Consider some people who have done tremendous evil in this world. Take Hitler. Uh, How long might it take for Hitler to really understand the depth of pain and suffering that he caused? Well, Mm -hmm. let's say that that, that he has to spend a thousand years meditating on How he negatively affected every life, and let's say that six million lives he has to meditate on each for a thousand years in this place. But but then at the end of all of that, he really truly is repentant, Uh, and he really does understand to the depth of his being what he did. Well, what is that amount of time compared to eternity? Mm. You know, uh, and so I think. What I would say is, yes, I think that that we should not take hell lightly, but neither should we make it into something that lasts absolutely forever for no for no redemptive purpose. All right. The next myth uh, that um, that Robin Perry brings up uh, that Rob Bell's book kind of gets us talking about is the charge that universalists don't believe the Bible. And uh, Robin Perry writes, one does not have to read Bell's Detractors for long before coming across the following sentiments. Universalists are theological liberals that reject the clear teaching of the Bible. Surely all good Bible-believing Christians will believe that some many or most people will are damned forever. Quote, if indeed Rob Bell denies the existence of hell, this is a betrayal of biblical truth, says R. Albert Moeller. Uh, David Cloud, concerned about Bell's questioning classical conceptions of hell rights, it is evil to entertain questions that deny Bible truth. Hmm. And that's something that you have to face. Uh, if you say, I mean, one of the things that kind of makes it hard to go to a point of Christian universalism, because pretty soon somebody's going to say, well, then you just don't believe the Bible, because the Bible clearly teaches hmm. that there's a hell. And so you're saying that it doesn't. And so that means you don't believe the Bible.
2: Right I get that all the time that you're rejecting the Bible and as as Robin Perry points out, are Universalists real Bi- really Bible denying? No. And he shows that it's not a matter of one group believes the Bible and another rejects it. It's a matter of how you understand what it's teaching.
1: Yeah, what, and you know what's been really interesting to me is that a lot when I started looking, at Christian universalism. I had studied it back in the mid nineties, but it was before the internet. And so Mm -hmm. then I started looking at it again in the 2011, 2012, along along, uh, that time period. And what I was shocked to find out was that most of the books that were being written in favor of universal reconciliation were being written by uh, people with backgrounds in the evangelical wing of the church who had extraordinarily high views of scripture. It was just mm-hmm. it was just tons of scripture and somebody like George Saras who who you know thinks that the Bible is literally inspired by God. I mean the very these were people who had super high views of scripture that were coming to this viewpoint and I was really I was just really shocked by that uh, by that development and your book is full of scripture. Mhm.
2: Yeah, and it's it's true that there are unbiblical versions of universalism, but you're right that a a lot of the books that have come out are written by really sound Bible-believing Christians who have a very high view of Scripture.
1: Yeah. Another myth that Robin Perry uh, says that Rob Bell's book brings up is that universalists don't think sin is very bad. And he says, uh, blogger Denny Burke thinks that Bell's weak view of hell is based on a weak view of sin, which in turn is based on a weak view of God. Uh, quote, sin will always appear as a trifle to those whose view of God is small. And so that's, that's uh, oh, well, if, if you believe that God will ultimately restore everybody, then you must not think sin is a very big, you must not think sin is a very big deal. What, what do you th- what do you think about that?
2: Well, that just doesn't make any sense to say that because it was such a big deal that Jesus gave his life for us, and he thought sin was so bad that he made it his goal to eradicate it from the universe, not just stick it in a corner of the universe where sinners would be pu- punished, but absolutely to completely eradicate sin. From the universe. And so he had to take very strong measures to deal with sin. And on the contrary, it's not at all a weak view of sin or of judgment or of God, but that God actually is very strong in dealing with sin and will completely overcome it.
1: Yeah, that the, the, was, I started thinking about all of this. I, I started to think, well, the, the ultimate purpose of God is that. Is that if if the ultimate purpose of God is that we would be all in all, and that that we would all experience final union with God, that means that whatever is in me that is not consistent with love has to has to go, at some point. So heaven is not just hey I didn't have to go to hell. No, what we're and this is what I like about the Orthodox Church, or appreciate about the Eastern Orthodox Church is their view of salvation is salvation is union with god hmm. and so if that's where we're headed it's not just about being declared not guilty it's about actually dealing with all the stuff and um, so to me that's a very that is taking sin actually very very seriously saying it doesn't just have to be forgiven it has to be actually removed from the from the soul because our ultimate destiny is to all experience this union in God together.
2: Right. And I've often said that it takes only brute strength to punish sin, but it takes the power of God to transform sinners. Only God can do that. And that's a very powerful view of God.
1: Uh, Here's another myth that universalists believe in God's love, but forget his justice and wrath. And Robin Perry writes, here is Britton Taylor's response to Rob Bell, quote, God is love, but he is also just. God pours out his mercy, but he also pours out his wrath, um, unquote. The implication is that universalists overplay divine love and forget that God is also holy and just. Uh, and that's a charge that you get, too, you know, because if you say, oh, well, if I say, you know, the Bible says that God is love, then the response immediately backs, oh, yeah, well, but God is also God is also just, and so there has to be a heaven for God's love, and there has to be an e- you know eternal heaven for God's love, and an eternal hell for God's um, justice. So uh, that so universalists um, believe in God's love, but forget His justice and His wrath. So, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, well, I have a chapter in my book where I talk about the idea that God is love and people will often add to that a but well god is love but he's also holy god is love but he has to punish sin and and i say that there're no buts about it god is love and he is holy and i believe that his holy love and his loving holiness are really one and the same his his basic attribute and that nothing he does can be unloving because he is love. And so it's not that you deny the justice of God or that you elevate the love of God above his other attributes. I think they're all at the core of his being and that um, everything that he does springs from the totality of who he is. So all his actions are 100% loving and 100% holy And you can't divide him up and say that one attribute is in any way in competition with another.
1: Mm -hmm. Here's another one, uh, a myth that Robin Perry says comes up, is that universalists think that all roads uh, lead to God. And it says, here is Kevin Mullen's definition of universalism in his discussion of Rob Bell, quote, universalism, the belief that everyone, regardless of faith or behavior, will be counted as God's people in the end. All roads lead to him. All religions are just different expes- expressions of the same truth. And that is something that, that comes up. If I say I'm a, I am ai believe in that all will ultimately be saved, then the assumption is that, oh, well, then you must be uh, what they call a pluralist, or you, you just believe that you know all roads are leading to the same place and it doesn't matter which path that you that you that you take but that's not what christian universalists are talking about is it
2: not at all and one argument that actually drives me crazy is when people say well if everybody's going to get saved anyway then why did jesus even have to die and honestly that's just dumb because <laughs> the reason <laughs> why everybody can be saved is because Jesus died. He's the reason why you and I are are saved and the reason why anybody else could be saved and no one could be if he hadn't died for us. So uh, there are versions of universalism that believe, well, all roads lead to heaven. But I, I do think that that God is leading each person to himself. And in the end, they will come to Jesus. I don't think that you can come to God without coming through Jesus, but he will lead all of us to himself.
1: I was uh, talking with uh, uh, somebody I know who is... I'll say a little, um, is more on that pluralistic side and their idea is basically, you know, we all grow up in a certain setting and we all have certain ideas about God. And I'm sure that it's, it's kind of like that parable where the people are all going around and they're feeling something and somebody thinks it's a rope. Somebody thinks it's a tree. It turns out it's an elephant, you know, but none of them know that. And so that the truth will probably be something like that, that each religion has a piece. And it, and it, it's thinking that it sees a certain things, but that when we finally all get there, it'll, the truth will be greater than any of the, than any of the, of, of the religions. And so they, they thought that my Christian universalism was narrow mm-hmm. and that as a matter of fact, that thought it was a little bit offensive that I was suggesting that, you know, Muslim folks are going to be happily, uh, worshiping Jesus and uh, Jewish folks and, uh, Hindu folks and all these people, you think that that's, I mean, isn't that kind of disrespectful of their of their religious traditions? Mm-hmm. And so what I sometimes tell people is, you know, this idea that I'm a Christian universalist, it might sound kind of like a, a liberal idea, uh, but actually I think it's kind of a conservative idea because I'm conserving what I think is was the most, was the best expression of Christianity in the early centuries of the church. I'm trying to conserve that. Uh, plus okay. I'm not, I'm, I'm, i I think it's pretty conservative to say that I think that in the end that we will all gratefully recognize Jesus mm-hmm. as our Lord and savior. So I, I think that that, that makes me a little more on the conservative side of things, even though I'm a Christian universalist. Yeah, and
2: I do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Uh, but I also believe that every person will find his way to Jesus, that God will lead each person to the cross to know Jesus and know the Father through him.
1: One of the other myths uh, that that Robin Perry points out that Rob Bell's book kind of brings up is uh, that universalism undermines holy living. Robin Perry writes, here is Frank, quote, oh, thank goodness Rob Bell is here to explain that we can do whatever we want. Drum roll, please. There's no consequence. There's no hell. And and that's, that is a criticism that is leveled against uh, Christian universalism, because if you tell people, well, ultimately, everybody will be reconciled to God. All they're going to hear is, well, fantastic. Then I can just do whatever I want to do and I'll just pay, I'll just pay for it after I die. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that one too. Well, if everybody's going to get saved anyway, why bother to live a good life? Just do whatever you want. And that's just a complete misunderstanding of what it is that God is inviting us into a relationship with him. And it's something that we can experience now, and why would I want to avoid that? If you really understand what the invitation is, it's something that you would want, not only for eternity, but for now. And it makes an enormous difference in the way we live now, and it's something that I want to share with people, and that when they understand it, they want that too.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's uh, that's 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 kind of the end of the um, of the some of the, the things that uh, Robin Perry brought up about uh, Rob Bell's book. But what's inter- what's been interesting to me about this, just on a personal level, is how uh, how good I feel spiritually. I mean, I feel better, more whole, and happier spiritually than I've ever felt. In my life, and I'm happier to talk about Jesus than I've ever been before. I've written a book. I'm doing a. I'm doing a podcast. Uh, I'm trying to help people to find this way, uh, so that they can. One of the things that bothers me is that there are people who are suffering, and that they could have a a life changing relationship with with Christ. Now, but they they can't get to him because they feel like in order if in order to do anything with regard to Jesus they have to accept this whole doctrine of eternal torment and Mm. and they just don't want to be involved with Jesus because that means they have to be involved with Christianity which means they have to be involved with this God who's going to put people in hell forever so they just say you know sorry you know I'll try the Eastern religions or I'll try something I'll try my own spirituality. And so that just hurts me to think that that there are people that that this roadblock, this giant roadblock has been set up for them. And that's one of the things that I think we both sort of hope that we can each do our little part to help people to see through that roadblock and say, no, that that roadblock got set up for lots of historical reasons. And we can explain them all to you, but don't let that roadblock keep you Mm. from uh, coming to Jesus.
2: Yes, it's an enormous stumbling block, and uh, it it keeps people away from the faith. And if we can do anything to to remove that stumbling block, so they can see Jesus in all His beauty and see the Father in His great love, then then that will be more appealing and attractive to them than fear of hell. And that is not a good reason to. Come to God; it doesn't develop the kind of relationship mm-hmm. that He wants with us. A healthy fear of judgment, yes, but not terror of the person of God.
1: Uh, Dan, we had a recovery uh, group at the church for a while, and there was a man who was really needing some recovery help, and he came uh, because he, it was on a Wednesday night. But he would come, and he would he would sit in the parking lot in his car and not come in for a while because he was just afraid to go into a church. He needed recovery, though, and he wanted to pursue a spiritual part of recovery. And, he, and he'd heard good things about our church and um, that it wasn't judgmental like some other things he'd experienced before. And so he finally got up the courage to come into the building, and he came in, and he sat down, and he was in the group, but he didn't say anything. And after after the group was over, I just said to him, you know, in in your recovery, you've you've been given permission to seek the God of your understanding. Well, here at this church, uh, you can—and our church is the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. It's not a very big denomination, so a lot of people don't know about it, but what makes it kind of unique is that we don't have a formal doctrinal statement that people have to sign off on. Instead, we say, no, enter into a relationship, read the Bible, pursue your best understandings, and we'll work this out together as we follow Christ mm-hmm. together, basically. So that's that's what I told him. And I said, so around here, uh, you're, people are going to see God differently. Uh, not everybody's on the same page. But I can just tell you that the God of my understanding as I see God through Jesus is that God is my ultimate loving parent who would never, ever abandon me. And however low I went, this God would go there with me, would never leave me and never forsake me. And that was ultimately more powerful than anything that would ever come against me. And that ultimately is concerned in my healing and well-being and mm-hmm. and will not fail with regard to me. So that's the God that I came to see through Jesus, just so you know, that that's possible here, not that, not that everybody sees it that way, but that's, that's the God of my understanding, at least, mm-hmm. that I see through Christ. So then he came uh, to the class for several more weeks, months, and ne- didn't ever say anything, he just listened. And then finally, after months, he spoke up and he started talking. And one of the things that he said was, when I lost everything because of my addiction, I hit rock bottom and I didn't think of myself as a spiritual person, but when I got to the very bottom, I realized I was talking to somebody.
2: Mm.
1: And you're the first minister that ever described to me the person I was talking to down there. Mm. And to me, that was kind of a confirmation of what we're of what we're trying to help people to realize that that. That the God of your understanding that you meet through Jesus can be that God who would go to the absolute bottom with you if it was necessary, who would never leave you and never forsake you. And once you feel that safe and that secure in that relationship with God, then to me you don't need to go to the bottom. You, you know, you you don't have to. You don't have to self destruct out of fear. Sometimes people will just they'll whatever they if they if they're afraid that they're going to self-destruct past where God can rescue them then they that makes them self-destruct. Mm. Uh but the idea of, of being able to believe in a God who is utterly with you and utterly loves you and will heal whatever and you can but we can turn to this God right now in Christ. It's just such a powerful thing. It is. I
2: I used to be reluctant to share the gospel because I was afraid people would ask me good questions that I didn't have good answers for, but now I really want to. It's something that I do not because of pressure that their blood will be on my hands if I don't tell them the, you know, the four spiritual laws, but I can really genuinely say, come to him. He's good and invite them to know him because mm-hmm. I can say with great confidence He's a good God.
1: Well, I I thought that one of the things, uh, you know, it's funny, Rob Bell's book is titled Love Wins. But there almost should be a little asterisk, you know, which should say, you know, uh, you know, unless you resist it forever. Mm. Uh, And to me, it's just love wins. That's what's going to happen. Love is finally going to win uh, with all of us. And w- at that time, when that happens, uh, there won't be any recrimination. I won't feel like I need, I'm mad at anybody or need to say anything to anybody. We'll all just finally understand each other and we'll all be together in, uh, well, that's God talks, or the New Testament talks about God will finally be all in all and that the, that will be the final. Uh, that will be the final outcome of all of all creation. Well, thank you for uh, awesome. for visiting with me about Love Wins. I just felt like on the tenth anniversary of this book that we ought to that we ought to visit visit and and talk about it. And I think we both had kind of similar experiences with it. So thank you, Rob Bell, uh, for uh, for taking a step out and. Uh, in writing this book, and putting this conversation on a national, on a national level, and getting a lot more attention, and for writing a book that got a lot of people thinking about this, and um, and, and just making this a debate that um, or, or a conversation that a lot more people are are in on. Anything you want to say about Love Wins as we're signing off here?
2: Uh, yes, I'm grateful for that, too, that it sparked that conversation that's ongoing to this day, and it has drawn people in to to talk about it, and that's important. So I'm grateful to Rob Bell, and thank you, David.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Diane, and thank you, Rob Bell, for writing that book 10 years ago, and we'll just be continuing on the journey, and I uh, look forward to the next time uh, we get to visit with, with each other on the podcast.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.